hear the words of Jesus Christ. If you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. This is my command, love each other. Obedience, as you've probably picked up from the scriptures that we've read and from the scriptures that were sung to us and we were led in singing along with, obedience is what I'm going to talk about today. So for many of you, the thought is, oh no, here comes a guilt trip. Here comes the deal where he tells us, you know, what we're not doing and how we ought to do it. And so this is the time to kind of turn off the mind, set it aside, shift into some other gear and think about something else. We get very uncomfortable when we think about obedience. But I saw an example of it this weekend that was astounding to me and quite different than you might expect. I was at the navigators class at my parents' church in San Diego. Now the navigators, the youngest member of the navigator class in my parents' church, is I would guess roughly 78. There were 130 people, 78 and above, or as they would say, 78 and better. I've never seen so much blue hair in all my life. It was amazing. And uh, of these people, these delightful people, I noticed several different things. Number one, Many of them were couples who had been married 50 and 60 and a couple of them close to 70 years. The second thing I noticed is contrary to what I would think of people of that age bracket, they were full of life and full of enthusiasm, full of caring for one another. The other thing I noticed was that uh, the hostess for the evening, her name was Mrs. Eisenhart, that she was clearly the MC, she was clearly in charge, she was clearly the leader, and her husband was cooking the food for 130 people, or at least organizing it. And he was serving, he had on an apron and he was running around, she had on a business suit, and she had the program all lined up, and she did a wonderful job, and he was scurrying about carrying the pots, carrying the pans, getting everything lined up, and she'd just about be ready to start the program, he'd go, no, no, it's not quite ready yet. It's not. Hold, hold on. And she'd stall for time, tell a few more jokes. They'd, they'd humor her along. And finally, when Pete, her husband, gave her the sign that all the casseroles were laid out appropriately on the table, then she gave the command for us to begin the evening. And as I watched these couples, married 50 and 60 and almost 70 years, I saw a new vision for obedience. Because it was almost as though... They had loved each other so long, they'd lived with one another to such an extent that they could anticipate what the other wanted and fill the need without being asked, and fill the need without feeling any sort of compulsion, fill the need because it gave them joy to do so because they were doing it for their beloved. Now that's not the picture we get of obedience. 
The picture we get of obedience is a stern father saying, don't run out in the street. At least we can understand that because you get killed if you're three, three years old and you run out in the street. So his sternness is at least in order to protect us and, and to promote our own safety and well-being. And so we can kind of picture that, but then we expand the picture a little more, and then we've got a stern mother or a stern father figure telling us, now don't have sex before you get married. And don't smoke pot. And don't smoke cigarettes. And uh, don't be lying to me about why you, that you had trouble, your car ran out of gas, and that's why you were late for your curfew. And don't do this and don't do that. Now, some of those, we could see that they were for our own good. Some of them, we might begin to question. But still, there's a sense of a power figure with some, some form of punishment or some withdrawal of privilege. I remember when I got to the age where my sons could beat me up. It's a, it's a frightening moment for a father. I mean, you've always got that kind of, you can take them down to the ground. And, and I thought, what do I, you know, what do we do? And I realized that once they could beat me up, I still had the power of the keys to the car that I could dangle in front of them. And I used it very effectively for years. And now my sons can both beat me up and they also own their own car. So, but what I found is that they actually love me. And, and they've gotten to that point in life where they think, maybe I have something to say that's worthwhile. In fact, they even seek me out once in a while for my advice on something. And so I don't need the physical threat. I don't need the withdrawal of privileges because there's love established between us and respect. And so we begin now a friendship, a mutual friendship of love and obedience. Jesus said in the first passage, he who loves me will obey my commandments and I'll send them the counselor. In the second passage, he said, he who obeys my commandments is the one who will love me and the father and I will make our home within him. In the next one I read, it was love first. He who loves me will obey my commandments and my father and I will dwell within him. And in the fourth one, it was obedience first. He who obeys me will be the one who remains in my love and, and will experience my joy. There's this interchange in the Gospel of John between love and obedience. And I've often heard sermons that take it one way or the other. They say, well, if you really love God, you'll obey. Therefore, all obedience is based in love. And they leave it at that. I've heard other sermons where they take it the other way around and they say, no, no, if you want to grow to love God, you start by obeying and then you grow into love. Well, apparently, because I just read four passages, three of which are in one chapter, in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John and the fourth one is in chapter 15, in a very condensed place, John is clearly showing us that there's an interdependence between loving Christ and obeying, obeying and loving Christ. The one thing that's clear is that when these two are operating together, something else is the result. And that something else is the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Comforter, the presence of the joy of Jesus Christ. That somehow when we get this, this relationship between obedience and love, when we get that worked out in our own life experience, Jesus promises that some spiritual presence... The very presence of the Father and the Son 
called the Holy Spirit or called alternately the Holy Spirit. Also later, in a sense, he, he tells one of the manifestations of the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is the joy which Jesus experiences. Somehow, if we get this loving Christ and this obeying Christ, if we get that worked out, a presence is promised us. And in other passages in these four chapters, we're also promised an answer to every prayer we offer. You remember that time when you were... You read that passage that whatever you ask in my name, I'll grant it. And so you said, Jesus, I want a new bike. And it didn't work. That's because we missed that other part. The person who's obeying his commandments, who's living in his love, can ask anything he wants because it'll be directly in line with the will of God. For example, if I had a $100,000 check here, and I wanted it to get to the poor. And I had a choice. I could give it to a 16-year-old skateboarder or to a televangelist or to the U.S. government or to Mother Teresa, which would be the wisest choice. The skater, of course, no. I should have left that one out. We'll just stick with the U.S. government and the televangelist and Mother Teresa. Well, I tell you what, I'd give it to Mother Teresa every time. I have a feeling every penny of the 100000 would wind up helping the poor. Why is that? Because she has such a lifetime of obedience, such a lifetime of love, that I know whatever she does with it, it will accomplish what I've asked her to. God looks at us the same way. If we get this interchange between love and obedience, obedience and love, a tremendous presence will come alongside of us and ironically will enable us to be more obedient and to be more loving and to respond in more joy. Now, what types of obedience are there? By the way, let me just use a wonderful quote uh, from a scholar that is quoted by Raymond Brown in his commentary. Love and obedience are mutually dependent. Love arises out of obedience, obedience out of love. It's not, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, Bart Tarman's kind of known as the love God, love people guy. You know, you, you guys have heard me preach on that. You seniors have heard me say that love is at the essence of it. I'm kind of known as the guy who talks about love a lot, who talks about mercy a lot, who talks about grace a lot. Does that then mean that I don't believe in obedience and holiness and a Christ-like life? No, it doesn't. The two are mutually dependent. One rises out of the other. Now, what forms of obedience are there? There's low obedience, and that's obedience out of fear of punishment. Many people spiritually never grow out of this. The furthest along they grow in Christ is that they're afraid of hell, they're afraid of the consequences of their sin on earth, and so therefore they keep from sinning as much as they would like to out of those two fears. Fear of eternal consequences, fear of, of earthly consequences. Well, that's better than indulging sin, and creating havoc in life. But it's certainly a very low obedience. It's the obedience that George MacDonald talks about in The Wise Woman when he says that, that the young girl Rosamond would, she would kneel in front of terror 
rather than fall in front of love. She would kneel in front of terror. Terror motivated her. But the idea of kindness and love, she didn't have, her capacity of her growth in her, in, her, in her own spiritual life had not grown to where that was motivating at all. So there's a low type of obedience that's better than no obedience at all. The problem with it is that it tends to be only external obedience. It's, I know a person who's, who's uh, uh, probably on the edge psychologically at this point in their life who became so uh, obsessed, in a sense, with, with the concept of lust and not lusting, that he would literally see him shake his head like this. And when you'd ask him what he's doing, he was trying to shake out a lustful thought. Now, he'd become so obsessed with not lusting that, it had become, that lust had become an obsession. It didn't work. It's, it's like saying, uh, don't picture a green elephant. You know, and 800 of you just pictured a green elephant. You can't not do something. But you can do something. So the idea of a low obedience is don't uh, commit adultery. A, a little higher obedience would be don't even lust. But an even higher obedience would be, take it from a male perspective, learn to love women the way Jesus would have you love them. From a female perspective, learn to love men from the perspective that Jesus would have you love them. You see, love is the answer to lust, not shaking the thought out of your heart. Not even blanking it out. So a low obedience tends to become mechanical. And, and the intention is not to love, it's just to not do something wrong. But Jesus acted out of responsiveness to the Father. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So all he did were acts of love. Some people think love is wishy-washy, that preaching on love is wishy-washy. I don't think so. You know, when Jesus said, on these two things hang all of the commandments, we think of the great commandments, right? Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your God with all your mind, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your strength, love your neighbor as yourself. On, all, on these two things stand all the law and the prophet. They hang on these two. But you know, Jesus said that about something else too. There's one other place where Jesus said, it all hangs on this. And that's when he said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, if I spend a bunch of time preaching on the golden rule, it's so famous that people don't even know Jesus said it. If I spent some time, you'd think, oh boy, another kind of, kind of love sermon. But I dare you to take that and apply it to any temptation you have or any doubt or struggle you have morally and see if it doesn't clarify it. I'll give you an example from my life. When, when, when my wife and I argue, only once every decade or so, but when we do, and she's clearly in the wrong most of those times. <laughs> and if she just was a little larger in spirit, you know, she could admit it quicker. And, and, and usually our arguments, you know, take place when we're kind of both tired and we're going to bed and it's late. And then my stomach gets all churned up. And I don't know, we, see, we, we've been married almost 27 years and we really like to snuggle. We, we sleep like spoons all night long. You know, I turn, she turns, she turns, I turn. You know, we like... Except when we're mad. And then, touching is out. And there's a line, a six-inch line between us. And it's as deep as the Grand Canyon. 
and it's as wide as the sky is high. I mean, you just, you, and if all she, if she could just rise above herself, you know, and just reach over, it's only six inches, just a little, you know, then, then detente would begin, you know, rapprochement would begin. We would start to love again, but that's the biggest six inches. Then I lie there and I think, well, if she would just come to her senses. And then I think, I'm not going to, you know, reach across that chasm. After all, she was the one who said, you know. And then I think, now, if I want her to do this for me, then I should do this for her. It clears it up instantly. Uh, let's take another one, a little more at home. Coming in the side door of the cafeteria, the DC. Ooh, now I'm meddling, huh? You like the analogies about marriage and all that, but I mean, the door's propped open. We've all seen it so many times. You slip in there, your meal cards run out, or you don't even have one, and you just kind of go on through the line. After all, you're paying a lot of money to be here. They owe you one. And last semester, when you had the card, you didn't use it all up. And they cheated you out of it. And besides, you have to get in there and pray with somebody. Because they're going through a hard time. If you were the owner of Marriott, would you want someone coming in and stealing your food. Somebody paid for the food you ate that day. It's not yours. And let's say you were the one who owned that business. Would you like 20 students or 50 or 100 students who say they're Christians to come in the side door, rationalize it, sit down and pray, and then steal your food? Well, if you'd like that done to you, then I guess it's okay. But there's not a person in this room who will own a business five years from now who would want that kind of behavior. You see, love and obedience go together. It's not loving to steal food from Marriott, even though Marriott's an institution. It happens to be an institution owned by human beings who have invested their hard earnings to make that company go. You know, it's interesting, when we're born, we're completely dependent on our parents for physical security. As we get a little older, we start to individuate, and we become individuals, and then we're only partly dependent on our parents for our physical well-being and our psychological well-being. Then we become adults, and we're completely independent from our parents, and we're completely independent in our culture, usually, for self-indulgence. We call it a lot nicer things like career development and, you know, things like that, getting on in the world, making your mark. And then at the end of our life, we become completely dependent again. And somewhere between there, what God is trying to do is get a person who is spiritually completely dependent on God, but not for self-indulgence, completely dependent on God in order to love every single person in every single way possible at every single moment. In other words, to be like 
Jesus Christ, to live out the golden rule very well and very naturally. Now, in the beginning, from infancy, we need a tutor. We need a parent that says, don't do this and don't do that. Do do this and do do that. I'll reward the good, I'll punish the bad. As we grow older, we have to begin to uh, nurture that within ourselves. But then there comes a place where if you want to grow beyond and in spiritual development, where you have to learn the reverse and to go back to dependence. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing at all. You can't do anything of spiritual substance apart from the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Truth, the Counselor. He says, if you're not attached to the vine, you're not going to produce spiritual fruit. You're not going to produce the life of Jesus. So ironically, in order to become like him, we have to become more like an infant in terms of dependency, but more like an adult in terms of responsibility. I'm the vine, you're the branch. How does a branch obey, obey the vine? It's an interesting analogy. I told you last week when we preached on this that I feel like the vine and branch analogy is, is one of the key analogies for the entire Last Supper discourse. You can't understand obedience without understanding what Jesus says about being a branch and remaining in the vine. There's an infusion of life. In a sense, a branch just shares the life of the vine, shares the nature of the vine. The branch just does what the vine does. And in following Christ, it's like that as well. Otherwise, we've just got another law that we have to try to live up to, just like the Ten Commandments. Instead of the Ten Commandments, now we've got love each other as I've loved you. We've got trust in God, trust also in me. But following Christ is not a set of obedience commandments that we try to live up to. It's the sharing of a life and the infusing of that life with our life so that the two more and more become one. Have you ever seen a, been up here at Westmont on a break when they have these summer camps with the kids, these athletic camps? I love the basketball camps. They've got these little, you know, they're about this tall and they're running around. They're going to be six foot five someday. Some of them. I thought I was. So it doesn't always work out. But they're running around and, and uh, you know, Coach Moore's down here and all the, the star basketball players from our team are here. And there's all these little first graders and they get, you know, they're, they're hitting the ball like that, you know, and, and they're trying to get it to go under their leg at the same time because they want to look cool. They've, they're trying to slam dunk, you know, they can, they've got a vertical jump of about two and a half inches. And they did, but the coaches don't get mad at them. They just work with them according to their ability. And when what becomes, finally they start, they say, no, you don't slap the ball, Johnny. No, it's not slapping it. You know, you follow the ball up and down. Your hand goes with the ball. And that feels really weird. Slapping is a lot more natural. I still do it with the basketball. I'm not convinced they're right, those coaches. But apparently, if you get used to it, after a while, it becomes so natural that when you're watching a pro do it, he's not looking at the ball, she's not looking at the ball, they're just going like this. And it's like, it's so natural. How did it get so natural? Because that person was Johnny or Sally slapping the ball 14, 15 years ago. Well, it came by very slow progress. And it 
came by trying out unnatural behaviors that you trusted a coach to tell you would work out a lot better if you did them. And it took pra- and you thought it would never become natural. And then one day it does. It happens in language. Some of you are in Spanish, 201. And you're thinking, the preterite, the preterite tense makes no sense whatsoever. It will never make sense. Is it Abba Ia or is it Easteo Amos Aron? Which is it going to be? In this situation, by that time, you've missed the whole sentence. And you think, I'm never going to be able to speak this language. And then you go to Guatemala or you go to Mexico or you go to some place and you begin speaking the language and you're, it's driving you crazy. Your brain feels like it's going to break out of your head. And then one night you quit trying to translate it. You quit trying to figure out which is preterite and which is imperfect. And you just listen and all of a sudden you realize you're understanding what they're saying without switching it to English. It's begun to be natural. Well, in spiritual development, it's supposed to be like this too. What's the surest way to grow in Christ? I think it's to obey his commandments. I think that's the absolute surest way. When Jesus says, Barty, don't slap the ball, you know, do this, palm the ball. The surest way to become more proficient in living the way Christ is to just do it the way he says until it begins to feel natural until I wouldn't even think of slapping the ball he said in verse 17 of chapter 13 now that you know these things and he was talking about what I'm going to preach on uh, either Friday or, or next week the idea of serving one another. He says, now that you know all these things, that you're supposed to serve one another, you will be blessed if you have discussion groups about it. No, that isn't what he said. Now that you know all my commandments, you will be blessed if you write books on them. You'll be blessed if you do them. C.S. Lewis says, you want to know how to grow in Christ? Get up out of your seat and go do the one thing you know that you were supposed to do and haven't. It might be write your mother a letter for crying out loud. That might be the surest way for you to grow in Christ. Just do the one thing that you know without a shadow of a doubt Jesus would want you to do today. Just do it. And if you're not sure what it is, ask him. I tried this experiment with five senior women last year. We, we were studying this principle together. And, and I said, well, if that's true, what Jesus says here, then it seems to, and if he's given us a counselor who can tell us what to do, then it seems to me we could just, could we make an agreement that we do one thing today that we know Jesus wants us to do? And they said, well, how do we know which one it is? And, and I said, well, what, how about if we just try praying? Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Let's just pray for two minutes and ask Jesus to show all five of you and myself one thing that you're absolutely sure he would want you to do. And they said, come on, we're in college, you know, we're, stu- we're, we're doing the liberal arts here. We're a little more sophisticated than pray for three minutes and, you know. And I said, well, I, it's kind of silly, I realize, but, you, you know, what do we have to lose? Let's just try it. Let's just see. So we, we were quiet for three minutes. All five of them said, this is amazing. I knew in the first 10 seconds what it was. That there was one thing, and it was, they were as simple as, I'm going to clean the dishes for my roommate. They, they lived off campus. They actually lived in the track house. 
And another it was this thing, another it was that thing. They were very practical. They weren't big moral issues. I'm going to bring peace to Bosnia. You know. They, I'm going to do the dishes. It was my turn and I didn't do it. Or it wasn't my turn and I'm just going to do it. Blessed are you if you do them. Let's enter back into silence for a moment. And I'm going to invite the chamber choir back up here. And I've asked them to sing the piece that they sang for us at the beginning of the service, which is the words of Jesus from which I've been preaching. You can come on up now as I'm talking. It's the words of Jesus that I've been preaching on. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. As they sing this piece, I'd like us to be in silence. And I'd like for you to make, at some level of your consciousness, a decision. Do you want to be obedient to Jesus Christ, yes or no? And be honest with yourself. You may not want to at this point in your life. But I'd like you to confront the question. If the answer is yes, then I'd like you to pray and just be in a spirit of reflection about one thing that God might ask you to do, not tomorrow, but today. And if he puts something on your heart, promise him you'll do it before the day is over. Then do it, and according to Jesus, you'll be blessed.